0: Hi, I'm Brandon from Selma, Alabama, a student pharmacist at the University of Mississippi in Jackson. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Magali Rodriguez de Bittner, Professor and Associate Dean for Clinical Services and Practice Transformation at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, about cultural awareness and how social norms influence healthcare decisions and medication use.
1: Lily Van,
2: a PGY1 community pharmacy resident, and I'm Ha Fan, a PGY2 ambulatory care resident. We're from the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. Today, we're talking about cultural competence as it relates to healthcare and the different health beliefs that our patients have, which may affect patient care. Our guest today is Dr. Magali Rodriguez De Bitner, and one of her many roles includes serving as professor and associate dean of clinical services and practice transformation at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. She's the Executive Director of the Center of Innovative Pharmacy Solutions, as well as spent time on the Diversity Advisory Council at the university and
1: much more. Magali, thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to chat with you.
3: Yeah, thank you. It's in, in fact a pleasure for me to be with you today and, and talking about this very important topic that, I'm, as you will tell in a couple minutes, I'm very passionate about it. Great. So let's get started. So
1: when I think about cultural competency, I'm actually drawn to my childhood. So as a young girl living on the West Coast, one of the things I vividly remember growing up was going with my mom to an apothecary shop in Chinatown to find different remedies for her ailments. So the walls would actually be covered in drawers of different roots and herbs, and she would buy these things to make different teas at home. And she really had a strong belief that these different roots and herbs would actually help to cure her ailments, because this is truly what generations of people had done before her.
2: For me as well, when growing up, my mom grew up in Eastern medicine, which is very similar to Lily's story. We would go to herbal shops and purchase different remedies. However, my mom was diagnosed with heart failure and was prescribed many different Western medications, such as our typical Lasix and spironolactone. But she not only took these medications, but added on her Eastern medication to supplement and, and do things such as improve her liver and kidney health. But the scary part is that she didn't tell her provider because she felt that these additional teas and herbs were, were not medications. So when thinking back to our training as pharmacists and cultural competency, and when we're asking our questions, when we interview patients, making sure that we're thorough and encompassing and, and aware of, of cultural differences.
3: Yes as both of you have illustrated with your example we see how important this whole concept of cultural competence relates to uh healthcare and and how again as healthcare providers um that we are, pharmacists, um, how important it is for us to know uh, the cultural framework of our patients if we really want to establish a pharmacist-patient relationship and be able to affect uh, positively our health outcomes. It is also a very important topic as we look at the demographic changes that have happened in the United States. More and more, these countries become more diverse. Uh, The minorities actually are going to be the majority in this country. So the patients that we encounter in our day-to-day functions at pharmacists are diverse and bring with themselves a lot of different cultural beliefs that are important to take into account as we develop our therapeutic plan.
2: Could you tell us more about your experiences with cultural competency and how you think this impacts us as healthcare practitioners in our communities?
3: Yeah, so so my interest in this topic really came about as soon as um, I came to the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy to complete my post-BS PharmD. I realized how many different cultures I encountered as I was uh, doing some of my clinical rotation and, and some of my classmates here and recognized that, there was a, a clear need to learn more about these cultures, to be able to serve these patients, and I felt that I, I needed to understand more and started then, you know, being very passionate about this, and the more I learned about it and the more through the years that I had done research and looked at the impact of culture in healthcare, the more I realized that it's a critical, critical issue in a profession because... We are not going to be able to affect outcomes of medications or really achieve the health outcomes we're looking for, unless less we understand the cultural framework of the patient. To make sure that we learn how to approach patients that may be different than us, that includes all the way from language issues or language barriers, all the way to a set of beliefs that they bring to the treatment plays a vital role, not only in the whole issue of adherence to therapy, but it also plays a vital role role in in individuals really making important behavioral changes that are going to affect
2: their health. Going off of what you just said too, how does all of that bring us back to thinking about the economic and legislative outcomes of cultural confidence and what we should be thinking about?
3: So one of the things that I, I like to highlight many of us in healthcare really are not aware or or sometimes forget that there are very specific legislative mandates that require healthcare institutions to provide individuals of diverse cultural backgrounds with adequate translation services that requires that we as healthcare professionals take into account the cultural needs and preferences of our patients, including the language preferences. And, that there are materials that are provided to the patient in the language of preference. And these mandates are what we call the class standards and they stand for cultural, linguistic, appropriate services. Another component of that is required training for the staff and personnel that work in these institutions to understand um, how to approach patients that are diverse and to also understand what are the rights that these individuals have to have teaching materials, to have all the consents, uh, particularly for surgery or some type of procedures to be provided to them in the language of preference. The other thing that I always, when I talk about cultural competence, that I always bring to to light is the whole aspect of that it really makes economic sense. And what I mean by that is that if you want your business to thrive, then you do that by meeting the needs of the customers that you have. So if you own a pharmacy or if you are in a health system where you're seeing a lot of diverse patients, it makes sense to you to make an environment and develop an environment that is open and inclusive to all the patients that you serve. So by doing so, you're going to attract business, your business will flourish, you know, you will be able to sustain your services. So we see these sometimes in community pharmacies that develop special spaces within their OTC aisle or, or spaces within the pharmacy where they have a variety of ethnic products, they have a variety of ethnic on over the counter products that again meet the cultural needs of the patients that they serve serve.
1: Magali, I think those are great examples and reasons of what cultural competency means in our profession and why it's important. So let's look at current practitioners, like you mentioned, who may not have had the training in cultural competency as a student. I know you somewhat alluded to this, but what do you think are cultural barriers that exist as healthcare providers and how do we handle these situations in practice?
3: Yeah, I think that that's a great question. And I really encourage all the listeners to this podcast to get curious and really start looking at and uh, learning more about this whole topic of cultural competence. And and in fact, we we also call it cultural proficiency, the highest level that a healthcare provider can get to where you not only provide cultural appropriate care, but you're passionate and, and you uh, invest in doing research and really learning more about advancing uh, cultural competent care. So how can they do that? Well, there's uh, a lot of online trainings that exist. There are a lot of great resources that are produced by uh, NIH and the Center for Cultural Competence. There's also Georgetown has a whole Center on Cultural Competence. There are uh, courses that you can take to really become more proficient in, in this area. So getting to the culture of barriers that exist and how to handle those, well, I think the, the most uh, common one that we see, and probably is the most obvious to all of us, is the whole issue of language barriers. So we know that there's a lot of our patients that English is not their first language, and they may have difficulty communicating in English with other uh, healthcare providers and, and also, you know, with other individuals uh, in that live in the community. So again, understanding that if that is the case, what are the resources that are out there within our institutions to be able to use trained translators that can help us during our interaction with these patients? For example, Walgreens Pharmacy has a whole set of a listing of pharmacists all across the United States that speak a variety of languages. So they make them available to other uh, pharmacists that may encounter patients um, that don't speak English and have a, a particular language one of the things that i really want to stress is that we should use trained interpreters and trained you know translators these uh, services should be provided by individuals that are trained to do this and not by asking uh, somebody within your institution that speaks the language to translate when they are not trained to do that for healthcare the second thing is if you don't have those services available to you, then what I encourage you to do is to be patient and to understand that I always tease about this because the fact that somebody doesn't uh, speak English, speaking louder is not going to make a difference. All right. You don't speak the language. It doesn't matter if you're speaking to me softly or loudly, I'm not going to understand you. So as such, you know, use pictures or try to communicate in a more using simple language. Do not use slang or scientific language and try to see if you could get your point across. And again, providing a patients with some written materials in their uh, language of origin to be able to understand what you're trying to say. The other thing is patients may come to you with already preconceived ideas or some of the treatment plans you're recommending. So again, trying to understand from the patient, learn from the patient, Get to know your patient, take the time to let the patient to feel comfortable, share with you what uh, are their expectations of the treatment? What are their uh, beliefs about a diagnosis that they may have? And try to understand like, their framework, where they're coming from, so you can incorporate it in your plan of care. For example... There are individuals that culturally, maybe the diagnosis of AIDS is something that creates a tremendous stigma within the society and the acceptance of their family members of of them and, and, you know, what this particular diagnosis implies. So it may be that even if you bringing them hope, you're bringing them treatment options, those individuals probably are not going to do anything because they feel that there's nothing they can do. It's a sense of hopelessness. So understanding what, what does diabetes means to you? Is it that in your family, a lot of patients had amputations, they had negative consequences. So it doesn't matter what you tell them, they're not going to be able to accept that they have the disease or they're going to take a very fatalistic and very non-optimistic take a view of the treatment so they may not be compliant because in their minds doesn't matter what treatment you give they are going to have a negative consequence so those are you know some examples again so being empathetic putting yourself in the shoes of your patients particularly if you don't speak the language how would you feel if you go to another country you're trying to express yourself and you're unable to do that but above all, I think is just showing respect and really showing interest in your patient to learn more about them and, and learn more about how they approach health, but how they approach illness.
2: Yeah, I think you bring up so many great points from giving us different resources for, at the Center for Cultural Competence at Georgetown. And I think you bring up such a good point in terms of stressing that we should be using trained interpreters and translators. I can think of this one moment where I was in clinic I tried to, you know, use one of the techniques that you're saying when communicating a little bit more slowly in in simple language um, until we were able to get our interpreter. But even in those, you know, few minutes where I was waiting for this interpreter, it is very difficult. So I can only imagine how it is for practitioners that don't even have these resources available to them.
1: So, Ha, I think those are some great points that you brought up and even your example, you know, just being a little bit more empathetic and patient in that moment is definitely a great proactive thing to do. So, Magali, on the topic of empathy, kind of what we we discussed a little bit while earlier, what are some ways that, you know, you think that we can respectfully challenge the beliefs of our patients? Say they do come in with um, different regimens they've been on at home, and it may not exactly coincide with the treatment plan that we've already created for our patients. What do we do in those situations?
3: I think step number one is to do a very comprehensive medication review that takes into account, you know, really getting the patient to feel comfortable sharing with you everything they are using. What alternative treatments are using? What are the over the counter medications they're using? What herbal or, or home remedies they're using? So you really get a very clear picture of what is going on, you know, in terms of that patient. Once you do that, it's really assessing what could be the impact of those alternative treatments they're using, you, you know, in the treatment treatment plan that you're thinking about or what interactions may happen if you uh, give that individual a, another you know, medication that may have interactions or may cause some issues with it. So one example that I always use is, so if once you do that, all right, so you look at that, you find out, number one, that there is an interaction, then really explain it to the patient and don't do it in a, you know, threatening way or challenging the belief, but really do it in a way as your responsibility as a pharmacist is providing them the information and explaining to them why it may not be the best course of actions to combine so most medications they're using or the over-the-counters or the herbal therapy that they're using with this new medication that you're trying to provide them and provide them with the information so they can take that information, digest it, and at the end of the day, they need to make the decision. And if they make the decision not to take the medication you're prescribing, not for you to be angry or to challenge them, but to support them and continue to express to them that, You know, you're going to follow them next time. Let's talk about it. Let's see how you feel next time you come. And be, you know, open and empathetic and respectful to incorporate the cultural beliefs into your treatment plan. If you research and you decide that some of these treatment plans are really not going to affect and they don't have any interaction with these medications or this new treatment plan that you're providing, then incorporate that within the treatment plan. Make them feel that you're not judgmental and you're not challenging their belief in this alternative treatment, but that you could also are going to incorporate it into what you're trying to do for them. A great example of this I always use this example, is in the Hispanic culture, we tend to use a lot something is called chamomile tea. And individuals use it for everything, all the way from calming your nerves to help you go to sleep. And if you really look at um, that particular herb, it really doesn't cause a lot of drug interaction with other medications. So you could add it to your treatment plan and encourage the patients to continue to do that, to continue to take it. But at the same time, take um, these other treatment regimens that you're recommending to them. Another great example here is individuals that may believe in meditation or believe in other ways of uh, bringing cure to themselves. So again, incorporate those other techniques within your treatment plan. And so I think that makes the patient feel that you respect them. You provide information that is appropriate for them to have, but challenge them in a very professional way, not in a judgmental way. And I think this is what we tend to see many times in healthcare when patients come to me and express to me how they're afraid of telling their physician or telling another healthcare provider that they're using these alternative remedies because the physician or the healthcare provider may immediately challenge them and start by, well, that doesn't work. You know, those treatment plans don't work. And, you know, I don't know why you're doing that. So they feel um, they cannot share that information with them. Well, if you do it in a respectful way and accept where they're coming from, that I think you will be more successful. Always remembering that the patient um, has the choice to do what they feel is best for them.
2: I agree. We really need to put together all the skills that you've reviewed, especially displaying empathy and being respectful in order to put together a treatment plan for our patients that work for them.
1: I love the point that you both made about the importance of not just empathy, but also respect in the patient's belief in order to truly gain their trust as we care for our patients to the highest degree possible. So really being able to approach our patients in a respectful and compassionate way first and foremost will definitely allow us to take a step forward towards cultural proficiency. So Magali, thank you so much for joining us today. This has really been such a dynamic and fun conversation. And we know that this is going to be a great thought-provoking episode for our listeners as well.
3: It's been really a pleasure for me to be with you today, and um, and again, I just wanted to stress the critical point of uh, self-assessment and really uh, see what are some opportunities they may seize to learn more about the topic, research the topic, to provide the best care that they can give to our patients. One thing I can assure you is that if you do that, you will be more satisfied in providing care to patients, and you. The relationship with your patients is really going to increase and become one in which there's mutual respect and, and you become partners in this journey to become more healthy and to really achieve the outcomes they're looking for.
0: Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like to share about someone who's transforming knowledge into action, send us an email. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's PharmacyCPD.org. This episode was conceived and developed by Ha Fan, Lily Van Chang, Megan Brown, Laurie Fleming, Josh Fleming, and Stuart Haynes.